Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Warren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. So cancel culture is continuing to wage its very nonsensical war, of course, and (laughs) Dr. Seuss is the latest victim. I grew up with Dr. Seuss books, and I 100% fully plan on reading those books to my kids one day. There's so many great ones. Lauren, do you have a favorite Dr. Seuss book? So as someone who's on a low-carb diet right now, I feel like (laughs) it has to be Green Eggs and Ham, but you know... I really like All oh, the Places You'll Go. I just, I love, I think it's such a thoughtful gift. And uh, yeah, it's just such a, I don't know, a, a nice story of hope. The first time I read Oh, the Places You'll Go, I think I was a teenager, maybe in my early 20s. And I was amazed at how profound it is. Mm-hmm. It's like, wow, this is a really encouraging book. Um, but yeah, I, I think as a kid, it was probably green eggs and ham. I was just really fascinated by the idea of green eggs. That just, for some reason, intrigued me. Did (laughs) you ever make green eggs where you just put the food coloring in there? You know, I never did. I feel like I should. (laughs) Oh, yeah. We we totally did multiple times. I missed out in my childhood. I'm going to have to do that. But, you know, it's been so interesting to see the fact that sales for Dr. Seuss books have just gone through the roof. And we've seen this over and over and over with cancel culture, that when something tries to get canceled, then there's this opposite effect of there's actually like a buyout. We saw it with with Goya Foods. We saw it with Chick-fil-A, that people, they vote with their dollars. And that's one thing that I love about capitalism is that, you know, something like this happens and it tries to get canceled. And then people say, wait a second. No, I'm going to buy a lot of that. So (laughs) good job, America. (laughs) All right. But enough on cancel culture. Lauren, what do we have queued up on today's show? Up on today's Problematic Women, Representative Kathy McMorris-Rogers, or CMR, joins us as we continue celebrating Women's History Month. She discusses being the first woman named to lead the House Energy and Commerce Committee and her work to defend the pro-life Hyde Amendment. Plus, former cosmopolitan writer and friend of the Daily Signal, Sue Ellen Browder, joins us to share a bit about her feminist journey. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative leading or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. I am so pleased to be joined by Representative Kathy McMorris-Rogers of Washington State as we continue to celebrate Women's History Month right here at The Daily Signal. Representative, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Virginia. It's great to be with you. So we are in the middle of celebrating Women's History Month here at The Daily Signal. And all during this month, we have been talking about women who have broken ground in their own families, in their communities, and across America. You've been breaking ground for a long time. You started as a young person. You were the first individual in your family to attend college. Would you just share a little bit about what was motivating you, even as a teenager, to you know, do things that maybe those around you hadn't done before? Yes. 
graduating from college and getting my degree, it was really my parents' dream for me for as long as I could remember. Every penny that I earned, my mom and dad, they would say, now, Kathy, you save that. You save that money so that you can go to college one day. My, my parents owned an orchard and fruit stand in a, a small town in eastern Washington, Kettle Falls, Washington. And I, I grew up working alongside my brother and my parents, selling cherries, peaches, apricots. I worked my way through McDonald's and had a housekeeping job, not, not the easiest or the most fun job, part of the motivation to graduate from college, but I'm so grateful for those experiences. And I, I learned to appreciate hard work and perseverance and what it takes to imagine what's possible and then work hard to make it happen. You know, that's, that's the American dream. So, oh, yeah. you know, I, I would have never imagined back then when I was working my way through college and getting that degree, that I would have been elected to Congress, to the House of Representatives as the 200th woman ever to serve in the House of Representatives. It's been an amazing journey. That's so special. And thank you for sharing some of that background. It is amazing to see how so many individuals like yourself, uh, you know, we, I think sometimes we can think of, you know, representatives on the Hill as you just sort of rose to this place of power, but you all have, have lived these incredible lives and often like yourself have come uh, really just from those American roots of working hard and then really finding like, all right, I can make a difference and I can make an impact. And I want to talk about one of the other ways that you have really done that. You have continued to break ground throughout your life. Uh, and you were not long ago, you were named the first woman uh, who was ever elected to chair the House Energy and Commerce Committee. This is the oldest uh, continually standing committee in the House. And of course, you're now the ranking Republican member on that committee. Would you just share some of your key policy goals as you continue to serve in leadership on this committee? Absolutely. It's really exciting to lead for the Republicans on the House Energy and Commerce Committee. This committee has been around nearly from the very beginning, 1795, and it has a rich history of tackling some of the, the biggest challenges facing the country. The issues that are at the forefront of this committee are really going to define our future and whether or not America leads and wins the future. And it's, it's pretty special to be the first woman to, to lead for either party on the House Energy and Commerce Committee. I remember soon after when I was named to this position, I was walking on the House floor and I, I was headed up there to vote and I bumped into Anna Eshoo, who is Democrat, longtime member on the other side of the aisle. And she just, she, she gave me this big hug and she said, congratulations, Kathy, you're the first woman to do this. <laughs> and she turned to Rosa DeLauro, who's now the, the chair of the House Appropriations Committee. And she just was like, you know, Kathy is the first on ENC. And so it was a moment when we were celebrating. And, you know, you think uh, it was just a hundred years ago that women gained the right to vote to, in America. And now women taking on more of these leadership positions and as the, the ranking Republican, as the lead Republican on this committee, you know, my goal is to build upon the strong foundation that has been led in this committee. Uh, we have eight new members on the Republican side, and they're all rock stars. They really have a lot to contribute to, to the team. Some of the issues that are at the forefront of ENC, you know, we're going to continue to be at the forefront of crushing the virus, rebuilding our economy, 
ensuring that American leadership uh, is at the forefront and that we continue to be the best place in the world to innovate, to save lives, to lift people out of poverty. Mm, I love that. I love that you were able to celebrate with your colleagues in that moment of being that first woman elected. That's so special. Talk a little bit about uh, now how, how you are working with your Democratic colleagues on that committee as you know, there are um, a lot of issues that uh, are you know, between parties. There's, there isn't agreement. That's true. This, this committee has a rich history of doing the hard work of legislating. It means Republicans and Democrats coming together and really plowing the hard ground necessary to work on legislation. And we get better results when we do that. And this committee has really led on some of the biggest issues facing the country, whether it's around energy, energy security, which is so important to our economy, to competitiveness, to our national security, healthcare, uh, curing diseases, uh, as well as technology. Unfortunately, this Congress, uh, we're, we're still at the beginning of this Congress, but Speaker Pelosi seems to be wanting to do it alone. And what we saw, even with the, the, the proposals that are coming out right now, the, the, the Democrats just released their, carb, their uh, green energy future bill that is focused on eliminating carbon, but, it's, but what I see is just, it's a down payment on the Green New Deal. It's, it's a lot more top-down, Washington DC knows best regulations and it really is making us more vulnerable to China. It's a it's a threat to our national and energy security, our grid reliability, energy affordability, our global competitive edge. So, you know, we're going to continue to highlight why is it why American energy independence is so important. Why policies like canceling the Keystone pipeline on day 1 of the Biden administration is so damaging. It is damaging to individuals and families in the middle of a pandemic. You know, in 2019, this is a fun fact, there were more than 400,000 women working in oil, natural gas, and the petrochemical industries. And this is not the time to be jeopardizing those jobs, especially when so many Americans are facing unemployment. So what we need to be doing is focusing on how does America lead? How do we make sure that America technology and innovation is winning the future? and not start down this path of Washington DC knows best Green New Deal style mandate. Well, and I think that's such a part, uh, a critical part of this debate is talking about the impact on real Americans that we're looking at, you know, as these uh, very progressive, you know, climate and energy policies are pushed forward by the left, really what's at stake is American jobs, you know, and not just jobs, as you say, for men, but also for women, correct? That's so true. 400,000 women that are in the industry. But I would just, I would just highlight that the Democrats and, you know, their, their uh, socialist agenda is really focused on policies that are going to make us more dependent upon China. They're promoting solar and wind and batteries and Look at who's manufacturing that. 90% of the solar panels are coming from China. 80% of the windmills are coming from China. They control 90% of the virtual, or not the virtual, the, the uh, rare earth minerals. And, and so they, they're, they're the ones controlling the battery uh, uh, storage and manufacturing right now. So in order for America to lead, we need to do it the American way. And that means to be promoting Yes, carbon capture and, 
and natural gas and clean coal and hydropower and those those clean energy that is all part of our clean energy future but that's where america can lead and export to other countries around the world rather than making us dependent upon china and costing us jobs in the united states absolutely I want to pivot and talk a little bit about another subject that I know is on the minds of many Americans right now, and that's education, getting our kids back to school. Of course, we're right here at the year marker from really when the pandemic hit and closed everything down. Many kids have still not returned to school. On February 18th, you sent a letter to the director of the Centers for Disease Control and prevention, Rochelle Walensky, expressing concerns over the newly released guidelines uh, for reopening schools. And you said that those guidelines, you saw them actually leading to more school closures instead of reopenings. What is it that concerns you so much about these new CDC school guidelines? Well, unfortunately, these new, new CDC guidelines are, are so restrictive that after a year, uh, since the national emergency was put into place, they are going to continue to keep schools from opening. In Washington state, only 26% of our schools have opened. And, and just, uh, just earlier this week, we had four doctors who wrote in the USA Today, they were talking about how the CDC misin misinterpreted their research to draft the school guidance and that the, the impact of keeping kids locked down at home in isolation is only going to lead to other concerns. I, I hear about this in my community. Every, almost every day I'm hearing from a parent who is concerned about their kids that they, you know, they're on virtual school, but they're, they're, they're sleeping throughout the day. Or a mental health therapist who was telling me that her caseload has nearly doubled. The number of kids that are in crisis is, is really frightening to me. We're, we're, seeing, we're hearing about more kids that are attempting suicides and the, and the suicide rate on the increase. It's, it's like we have this mental health crisis developing within the, the pandemic. And we, we need to get our kids back in school. We can do it in a safe and responsible way. We've learned a lot in the last year. We are not where we were a year ago. And I hope that the administration will listen, listen to doctors like those that came forward in USA Today, but that they're, they're raising this alarm and urging the schools to reopen. Did you get a response from Director Walensky uh, after you wrote her that letter? I'm still waiting for that response. I have, you know, I talked to her early on and, and she said that she wants to open schools, but the, 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 the uh, guidelines that they put in place are so restrictive right now that I fear schools are not going to be able to reopen. Yeah. Why do you think the Biden administration has taken the approach that it has to reopening schools and being so hesitant to do so? Well, unfortunately, it seems like so much of it is being driven by fear and, and instead of the science. Because if you follow the science, we know that the transmission rate among kids is very low. The, the transmission of COVID-19 between a child and a teacher is is very low. We've seen in, in the states, some of the states that have opened, as well as in other countries around the world, that the risk or the fear that they are promoting or suggesting may happen, isn't, it just isn't happening. Uh, President Biden, the, at the beginning, he said he wanted to open schools. And then we, we heard, well, his, real, his goal is one, one day per week, right? 
Uh, I just would impress upon the, the Biden administration, the CDC, that every day that goes by, that our schools remain closed and that this, this lockdown and the forced isolation continues, that our kids are, are falling behind. They're falling behind in their schoolwork, they're, but they're also facing more and more uh, of the anxiety around being at home. The, the reality of isolation is having a, a negative impact. The kids that are in crisis continues to increase and we we need to we need to face this like a crisis. We need to uh, open our schools in a safe and responsible way. way. The science is, su suggests that we can, and and we need to stop making excuses and living in fear, and actually get our schools open and do what's in the best interest of our our kids. Mm, absolutely. Now, I do want to take just a moment to talk about the Hyde Amendment, because that's something that you have been so on the forefront of, of defending. For anyone uh, in our audience who's maybe not familiar with the Hyde Amendment, could you just give uh, a brief explanation of what it is? Sure. The Hyde Amendment is named after Congressman Henry Hyde, who was the champion of this language, this law that says no taxpayer funding will be uh, put towards abortion. So it prohibits the taxpayer funding of abortion. It's been the law of the land for, for over 40 years now in the United States of America. And the large, large majority of Americans do not want to have taxpayer funded abortion. Do you see this as a partisan issue, the Hyde Amendment? Well, it has enjoyed bipartisan support. It has enjoyed the, the support of even people like President Joe Biden, before he was elected president, he, he, he had been a strong supporter of the Hyde Amendment. In, in this latest COVID relief package, in the $1.9 trillion package, it's the first time that the Hyde Amendment protections were not included in a COVID relief package. So we've passed four COVID relief packages to date. It, all of them included the Hyde protections. The Democrats this time decided not to include that. So it means that the funding in this package is not protected by Hyde, which means that taxpayer funding could be used then for funding of, of abortions. We're making the case um, that this is not an appropriate use of taxpayer dollars, that is long enjoyed strong bipartisan support. And then I would also make the case that, that science is clear that what is, you know, because of technology today, we can look into the womb. We can watch day by day the development of a, of a life, of a baby. And, and even now doctors can ad, ad, administer life-saving treatment prenatally because of research and therapies. It's, it, it all reaffirms and um, it just reaffirms the, the miracle of life. So we need to be, as a country, continuing to celebrate life and all that it means at every stage from conception to death. Are you concerned uh, that the Hyde Amendment may, there may be a real strong push to repeal the Hyde Amendment and that we perhaps would see that? This, I, I am concerned that this is a, an indicator as to where Speaker Pelosi and the Democrats intend to go that this is gonna be one of the big fights of this Congress to protect the Hyde Amendment in, in the appropriations bills as well as uh, just in general. 
And I've heard some Democrats say that this is their goal to remove the Hyde Amendment. So this is one where we need to raise the awareness and make sure that taxpayers and citizens across this country are delivering a strong message to Congress to continue to protect the Hyde Amendment. Final question before we let you go. We'll end on a little bit of a lighter note. Uh, throughout this month, as we say, it's Women's History Month. And one of the questions I've been asking our guests this month is, you know, if they could go back in time and they could give their 25-year-old, their 30-year-old self one piece of advice, what would that be? I would say take more risk. Don't <laughs> let the fear of the unknown hold you back. I think, I uh, you know, especially as women, we just need to go out there and, and uh, be risk takers, be trailblazers. It's really exciting that in this, this 100th anniversary of women gaining the right to vote that we have a record number of conservative Republican women that are elected to Congress. We now have 30 and they are all rock stars and they're risk takers. Mm. You know, I they, love that. Yes. Oh, that's so good. You know, Senator uh, Marsha Blackburn said something very, very similar last week. So we have a trend of, of be bold and take risks. I like it. Absolutely. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much, Representative, for joining us today. Great to be with you. Thank you. Stay tuned because up next, Lauren talks with former Cosmo writer Sue Ellen Browder. But first, I want to tell you all about one of my other favorite podcasts. It's called Heritage Explains. It's hosted by my friends, Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher. They break down the big policy debates you hear about in the news at a 101 level. Using news clips and music, they tell a story, but they also bring on heritage experts to explain complex issues. So go ahead and pull out your phone, if you're not driving, and subscribe to Heritage Explains so that you can be in the know on issues like the minimum wage, gun control, and election integrity. Welcome back. I am honored to be here on the phone with Sue Ellen Browder. Welcome, Sue. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. So, Sue, uh, we talk a lot about you on the show. Your book, Subverted, just means a lot to us. And we traveled out to Wyoming uh, last summer and, and got to meet you. And we produced a documentary that was definitely one of the, my favorite things I've ever created. So just wanted to check in and, and see how you're doing. Well, that documentary, people just love that documentary. I get so many compliments on that. I'm doing fine. I'm out here in Wyoming. I've left the big city behind, and I'm living in a small town of about 7,500 people. And I'm associated, not uh, formally, but informally, with Wyoming Catholic College. It's a little college out here. And for those who haven't seen the documentary, which I will link below, what is your story, Sue? Well, I, 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 my story is a long one. I started out in Iowa, and I went to the University of Missouri School of Journalism, and I learned to, that the people have the right to know the truth. And then, after I left college, I almost immediately fell from grace <laughs> and went to New York City and start, took a job at Cosmopolitan Magazine. And that is where I learned that almost all those stories, oh, this was back in the early 70s, so this was in the heyday of the women's movement, and it'd be just, just starting, and the sexual revolution. And I learned that almost all of those stories that we were making up about those women having all those wild, wonderful sex lives were completely made up. The, 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 but in, in those days, people's women still waited to get 
married before they had sex. I mean, not always, not always. I'm sure there was lots of hanky panky going on, <laughs> but um, they they did. The marriage was much more stable. People didn't get divorced. Uh, they had they had babies. I mean, it was an entirely different world. And so then, how in the world are you going to sell that sexual revolution to this rather Fam, very strongly family-oriented culture. They sold it by making up a bunch of lies. And so that that's, was my story. I was at Cosmo, and I have to say, and I, I made up those stories too. I was part of the this uh, sexual revolution movement at that time. But but I was also happily married. It was I was a very... Um, I had both both things going there, and and so I was was very anxious a lot because I was obviously I was lying all the time, and uh, then I left that, uh, left Cosmo, uh, found the church, um, um, had had a beautiful marriage, uh, everything began to be wonderful. I started to write for Reader's Digest, and then I've even left all of the uh, journalism behind, and now I'm out here in a little town in Wyoming. I came out here basically because I love the liturgies of the priest that came out here, (laughs) and I spend a lot of time uh, in prayer. Um, During Holy Week, we will spend 40 hours in prayer, and yes, we have had no masks, and we bit, we have celebrated throughout this whole pandemic. <laughs> it's been a joyful thing. We were one of the few um, places because it was in a in a college. We were not shut down. We were wow. not shut down, and so we we've just gone through the whole thing. We 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 were one of the few places last Easter um, that he was able to have full services. Wow. That's, it's been that's, beautiful. That's amazing. I mean, it's, it's just, just so, so, so important to, you know, be able to, to gather as a, as a church and, and be worshiping, especially in these hard times. Yes, exactly, exactly. And this is a, as I say, it's a small little Catholic college here. These kids are on fire. It's just it's just a wonderful, inspiring place to be because, because they're, you know, it's like a different world. We're, it's like it's like we're in another world. I talk to people who are in Marin County, and my son is in Los Angeles, and you're in D.C., and I'm like, we're living in a different world. <laughs> <laughs> well, so tell, tell me about your world. I mean, you you work with college kids, and and you know you mentioned that they're they're so fired up. What is that like, and and how how does that affect you as a person? Oh, I think it's, it's just, well, it makes me very happy. I'm happy all the time. I have wonderful mm-hmm. dreams. I go to bed at night, and, and I fall immediately to sleep and sleep for 10 hours straight, and then I wake up. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's wonderful to be around people that are not depressed, not lonely, uh, not unhappy. Um, um, the, these kids, one thing I noticed when I came out here was their eyes. Their eyes are so on fire and alive. Um, these are kids have not been damaged by the culture that we're living in. They've escaped it somehow. They must have come from very good families. 
and very protective families. But I, you, you know, I it's just a, it's just a wonderful grace to be here. And you're working with these college kids based on your book. You know, you you're teaching them these lessons that you learned. Well, what what they what they wanted the kids take charge here, and it was actually the kids that wanted me to uh, the college kids that wanted me to teach them about sex and the Catholic feminist. That's my that's my new book, um, and so we actually got together what they what they call a practicum. It's a it's a class in one of the in two of the uh, young ladies' uh, apartments, and we got together for oh I don't know ten twelve sessions and uh, talked about um, feminism, the new Catholic feminism, the new Christian feminism. Um, they're getting ready to go out there in the world. They're very interested in in what they're going to uh, engage with, and so yeah yeah I'm I'm teaching them, but I'm not actually part of the college i'm kind of, i'm an adjunct here i'm just kind of i'm part of i'm part of the uh byzantine uh chapel is what i, I am and i i go to all the services so based on your experiences in new york and and writing for so many years and now working with these college students i mean how does these how do these small colleges and groups of young people how are they the solution moving forward? I think they are the solution moving forward. I think we need to gather together in very tight-knit communities. This is there's only about 180 kids in this in this little community and we need we talk to each other, we we eat with each other, we pray with each other. We we and and these kids that are going out into the world. The, these kids are all over um the country, but in in some ways they're still interconnected with each other. So there's a web of support that moves out from these small colleges all over the country and all over the world. And it's invisible, but I think it's very powerful. And I think this is where uh, the renewal of America is going to come from. Well, it's, it's just so good to talk to you and, and hear your happiness in your, in your voice and being in your small town. It, it is just so beautiful uh, but Sue, I do want to pivot and talk about your book uh, a little okay. bit. Subverted, okay. subverted. Okay. Uh, it was what, how we learned about you, and and the the book just drew us in, and and we were like, we we have to tell this story. So it's been out for about five years. What do you think the effect your book has had on both the conservative movement and just a, the larger conversation on feminism? Well, I think a lot of people are are waking up to the fact that there is a Christian feminism that feminism doesn't have to be all about sex what what i've I've done with both of these these books is separate out the sexual revolution from the women's movement. The feminist movement was was a battle for equity, not equality, equity in the workplace and academia. That's what women wanted. They wanted fair to be treated fairly as women, not as not as men, but as women. They wanted to be treated fairly. And and the sec when the sexual revolution got joined to the women's movement, that's when the trouble began for women. And how did that happen? Well, 
there there was a night in the Chinese room of the Mayflower Hotel in D.C. when uh, about 100 women met, when a few men uh, met in the National Organization for Women's um, Second Annual Conference to draw up their Bill of Rights. And one of the rights that they voted on that night was the right to abortion. And when they voted that in, there were only 57 people that voted for abortion that night. One-third of those women walked out of that meeting and later resigned from now over the abortion vote. And we're still fighting that right today. Because because once you break the... the uh, sexuality between men and women once you, you break that uh cord uh you've got serious you break the, up the family you break up you break up everything we you some of the a lot of the things that we're dealing with now today were because of that false joining of the sexual revolution with the women's movement and the women who did that did not know what they were doing they did not get it in fact, Betty Friedan, who was the one who read, who led the charge uh, later, um, was defending the family and uh, defending the differences between men and women. Um, they didn't they didn't get what they were doing, but it was a big big mistake. And now we're here today. So yeah. my so sex and the Catholic feminist and also subverted how I helped the sexual revolution hijack the women's movement is there to tell people that history. So once you've got that history underneath your belt, you'll be better able to um, engage what we're dealing with now. We have, you have to know your past before you can go out into the future and change wow. it. Wow. Every time I hear that story, it, it just it blows my mind, the, the power of the individual and, and two, just how quickly society can can fall um and and you know how how actions have consequences and, and we're definitely seeing that today one little thing one little thing can can have big consequences one little change just one night in the chinese room when 57 people vote to insert abortion in the women's movement by the way under the influence of a man <laughs> who convinced Betty Friedan that abortion should be inserted into the women's movement if she wanted her other rights to be. Remember, this was a time, people don't remember this, this was a time when people were being fired, women were being fired for being pregnant. And so I was fired for being pregnant. And so so people don't understand the reason why women thought they needed con perfect control over their, over their um, having babies was because they were being fired for being pregnant. Well, that that ended. That's not that you that is illegal now. So a lot of the things that women were fighting for at those times have been won. You know, but the mm -hmm. things that that um, got inserted in there, really wrongly, falsely, the the sexual revolution's demands for abortion and contraception and all of these these demands that sexual demands, that's what the Me Too movement is fighting today. Women don't understand. Both conservative women and liberal women are fighting for the same thing. We don't like that sexual revolution. <laughs> <laughs> and we want people to quit treating us as sex objects. It's, we're, we are all agree on this. 
but but we've split off into two two different groups. It's 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 it's, it's should be changed, and uh, the ladies here at Wyoming Catholic College know it, and we're going to change it. <laughs> one one person at a time, <laughs> one family at a time. <laughs> that is that is so great. So it is it'll. It is always a pleasure talking to you, and you you make it sound like you have a really quiet life in Wyoming, but with your work with the college and now your work with live action, it sounds like you, you actually have a full plate. Can you let us know what you're doing with live action? Well, I'm doing some research for them. I, I'm, they've hired me as a researcher. And so, and that's really what I am I as a, as a journalist. One thing I knew as a journalist that I know how to do and I've always known how to do is to find the top authorities. And that's and that's what I wasn't doing when I was writing at Cosmo. Of course I was young, I was in my twenties and I didn't quite know what was going on yet. Um but uh you know, I can find I, I know who to trust. It takes a while to to find them, but you can find out who to trust, and that's and that's what I'm doing right now is uh, journalistic research. Well, Sue, always a pleasure talking to you. I want to really encourage our listeners to go out and get your book, Subverted and Sex and the Catholic Feminist. And hopefully, this is not the last time that we have you on the show. That sounds good. I'd love to talk to you again. It's easy to get overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle. If you're looking for a way to keep up with the news that matters, the Daily Signal podcast brings you the top news of the day. Hosts Rachel Del Judas, Kate Trinko, Rob Bluey, and myself, Virginia Allen, bring you headlines and interviews with lawmakers, authors, and conservative activists. If you're a conservative who wants to be on top of the news, check out the Daily Signal podcast, available every weekday morning. Now, it is that time, once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic one of the week. And the crown goes to Representative Victoria Sparts of Indiana. I recently had the opportunity to interview Representative Sparts for a documentary project. It's part of Women's History Month. I'm so excited for it. Representative Sparks was born in the Ukraine, which at the time was part of the USSR, and she grew up in socialism, and she later met her husband and, and immigrated over to the United States, became a citizen, worked her way up through the grassroots, just such an inspiring story and such an interesting perspective of someone who knows the dangers of socialism and sees it coming here and is doing something to fight against it. One of my, besides the question we're going to play for you, my, my other favorite soundbite from her was... You know, why, why did you run for Congress? And she said, uh, I don't like being a politician. I, I just do this because I feel like I have to. So she's a, just a really strong woman, someone really refreshing to see in Congress. And I can't wait for you all to listen to this next soundbite of her where we talk about being a woman in identity politics. So you mentioned earlier that you don't like labels. How do we balance supporting women and especially conservative women um, in Congress as, as we need more of them without buying into this narrative of identity politics? Well, I think it's important to promote diversity in the party. It's extremely important. 
but also not for picture op. You know, I, <laughs> I ran, you know, women's organization. I was president of Republican women, vice chairman of local party, being involved in a lot of leadership roles in the party. And I engaged with women, and I had first diversity coalition in our party because I care. I care to, for them to be engaged and become part of decision-making. So I think it's important because it makes us stronger to value these people, diverse people, for their policy-making, for their brains, for their input. Not just, oh, okay, I want to put woman or minority person and just take a picture, and then I'll move on and do what I want to do. So I think we need to really put our money where our mouth is and actually engage more people, engage more women, because I think it's important. And Democrats do the same thing. You know, they do a lot of times they talk about women, but not necessarily put them in a position of decision making and or promote ideas that most women don't agree, but they sell them much better. So I think we need to do a better job engaging and communicating our policy because majority of women believe in the future of their children they believe in good education, good public safety, good policy. They want to make sure that they have uh, pensions and small businesses. They want to make sure that their children are going to have a bright future. Because we're different from a man. We have to multitask. Our life is tougher in a lot of ways. But we are long-term thinkers. You know, we are more strategic. So having that diversity actually make our man sometimes think a little bit more long-term which in politics is very hard. Politics is very reactionary, very short term, because policies change, party change all the time, but it's good to have that input. So I think our men need to do a better job embracing, communicating with women in the party and engaging them in a decision-making and actually value that input and then sending that message, and I think a lot of women will become Republicans. Oh, that was great. Lauren, I cannot wait to see this documentary. I love how you are continuing to tell these powerful stories about these amazing women on the Hill who really, like you said, you know, they're putting their community, they're putting their country in many ways before kind of what they in some ways would prefer to be doing. They're serving out of this place uh, of, of duty and really wanting to make America a better country for their children and their grandchildren. Couldn't agree with you more. That's such a great way to put it. And yes, just one of many. We will continue to be producing those and continuing to tell you the personal stories of people that you see in the news every day. And with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, go ahead and subscribe and share, share, share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world. And we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify. Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great rest of your week and a great weekend. And we'll be back with you all on Thursday. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree P.